Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Armin Barnett, another new friend from Seattle. Armin shows some really neat tunes, and he sheds some more light on the history of the Seattle trad music scene. Also, he shared some stories from the revival days about some sources that weren't as enthusiastic about old-time pilgrims as, let's say, Tommy Gerald was, which I really appreciated because I've definitely romanticized those times in my mind. Uh, also, something for me to keep in mind as I make this show. Stick around afterwards, and I'll tell you how you can support Get Up in the Cool and get some exclusive bonus content. But first, here's my interview and jam with Armin Barnett. Enjoy! Barnett, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Why, thank you. Welcome to you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for letting me in your house, <laughs> giving me beer, etc. What's that tune? That is uh, The Devil's Dream, an unusual four-part version of it that I learned from Franklin George, my first mentor on the fiddle, whom I met in 1969 at the University of Chicago Folk Festival hmm. when uh, I offered to put up a performer, and he and his future wife Jane were who I got and cool. so he uh, told me about the uh, Glenville uh, West Virginia West Virginia State Folk Festival and I traveled down there and 
uh, I, at the time I was playing banjo since I was 10 years old and uh, I started learning old time music on the banjo and then eventually got into playing the fiddle. So wait, were you playing the fiddle at the time that you met Franklin George? No, I was just playing banjo. Just I, playing banjo then? When I was 10 years old in Chicago, there was a remnant of the old WLS barn dance that was on the pop station WLS that was on Sunday afternoon to early evening, mm. and I heard one single recording that totally galvanized me and made me want to play the banjo. It was uh, Ralph Stanley, the Stanley Brothers, Ralph Stanley playing an instrumental called Hard Times, and I just went, Mom, i got to get a banjo. Yeah. So uh, we went and got a banjo and Pete Seeger's banjo book, and oddly enough, that very tune was transcribed in transcription in, in tablature in his book and uh, so I played banjo throughout high school thinking that I kind of wanted to play bluegrass but I was never very good at it never got very good sources never found people to really show me so I just dinked around but then when I got in college uh, luckily the University of Chicago had this amazing folk festival and yeah. uh, that's um, where I heard Frank and I heard uh, the first the very first year that Tommy Jarrell and Fred Cockrum and Oscar Jenkins wow. were uh, because the New Lost City Ramblers were kind of like the the field agents for that f festival. They played there every year and they would be out traveling around and meeting people. And so cool. Roscoe Holcomb and mm. uh, just all kinds of great people that I heard when I went there. And I got into this thing of putting up performers. I my first year when I was still in the dormitory, I had Skip James staying in my dorm room that's amazing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how old was skip james at the time he wasn't young <laughs> yeah yeah this was 19 that would have been 1967 so wow. uh, um and then for i think there was one year i missed but then i had frank george and then i had jean carnion the the great french canadian fiddler one year so that was kind of fun getting to meet those people so you went to college in chicago or are you also did you grow up in chicago as well i grew up in chicago uh sophomore year of high school my family moved to omaha nebraska uh -huh. i moved back to chicago uh to go to college and then i went to graduate school for a little while in charlottesville virginia at the university of virginia um kind of started the old-time music scene there there hadn't ah. been anything there before that was uh, your decision to do charlottesville like based on your exposure it was part, to this music partly based on that and partly that it, my my viable choices were staying and staying at the university of chicago or going to virginia so i went there and then as it turned out I really didn't want to pursue an academic career anyway, so uh, so I stayed down there for a while. <clears throat> and then I went back to Chicago um, thinking at first that I was just going to be visiting an old friend of mine there, uh, but it was uh, late fall, early winter. At that point, I was pretty much skilled in carpentry work, and uh, the, it wasn't a good time of year, uh, time of the year to be looking for that kind of work. But I had also started to get uh, a little bit of exposure to violin repair work. Mm. And I checked all the shops in town, and one of the very best ones had an opening. And they said they didn't really care what I already knew, but how well I could learn what they wanted to show yeah. me. And so come down for a couple of weeks, and we'll see how we feel about you. And I stayed there for four years, working six days a week, and one of the uh, guys in the shop, Mr. Chuho Lee, was... Uh, 
eventually ended up being the uh, director and then later the owner of the Chicago Violin Making School. But wow. before that, he I helped him set up an evening shop and he taught me and two of his other Korean friends violin making. So wow. that's so I ended up being there for those four years and then moved to Washington State first to Spokane to uh, uh, develop and teach a string instrument repair program in community college, which I hated, <laughs> and uh, but then got exposed to the great music here in Seattle and increasingly was just coming over, you know, first for two days, then five yeah. days, then ten days, and it's eventually, okay, you know, something like a a dozen vehicles of people came over and played a square dance in Spokane and caravaned all my per yeah. <laughs> belongings over to Seattle, and I've been here ever since. So that was 1979. Now, why... <clears throat> so I've been... I've barely spent any time in Seattle, and this is my first time as an old-time musician being in Seattle, and I'm just now learning that the traditional music scene here is awesome and kind of old. And there's been like people here for a long time playing traditional music. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to that because I, I was talking to Emily Keene uh -huh. and she was saying that, you know, there was a time, I think she said in the sixties or seventies when all of the bands would skip Seattle, they would go from Portland to Vancouver and they wouldn't necessarily like, you know, play here. And then it wasn't the town that it is today. Right. Um, well, I, I don't know what was going on in the 60s. I'd say that when I got here, um, there were there had already been a pretty big influx of people there. I would the uh, influential people. Um, well, uh, a fellow who I just saw today because he brought me his bowdery hair, Hank Bradley, whom you might mm -hmm. have heard about. Um, I just played Roscoe's Gone. Uh-huh. Uh, that was my first exposure to him. Right. And, and now I really want to meet him. <laughs> so Hank was here, and of course, he he came from uh, um, North Santa Cruz, uh, uh, South San Mateo, right on the, the border there. Um, his family had a, a, a ranch, uh, a farm there. And um, also, um, so he, he was one of the, early foci his his <clears throat> uh ultimately his wife and then ex-wife sandy bradley uh was here also and in fact the, the some of the people who i met when i was in spokane uh, the summer after i had stopped teaching and gave up my job there uh i was working in the park and some program and part of which was uh, they had a little festival and it was uh, there was a thing teaching uh, kids how to make simple musical instruments mm. and they hooked me up with two people from Seattle as, to teach with and that was Sandy Bradley and Warren Argo and they were both playing in the Gypsy Gippo string band which Hank was in an early version of. There was a uh, a big uh, burst of musical cohesiveness that happened around the time of Expo 74, which was in Spokane, and in fact, this summer event was one of the last little trail-off things of that. And so the Gypsy Gypo string band formed around that time. Um, 
and uh, with a local fellow named um, Jerry Mitchell, Warren and Jerry, and Jack Link. All three of those were original uh, among the original Gypsy Gypo members. They they're all they've passed away now, uh, and. Um, John Burke had moved out here, who was the, the you know the very influential melodic banjo player, yeah. but he also was playing a lot of uh, fiddle music, and he had a band called the Old Hat Band, that uh, busked a lot. But a lot of the people that played here moved up from California, hmm. and um, a lot of them were people who had associations with uh, Virgil Bixby's Sweet Smell Festival. I don't know if you ever no. heard. Of it. So Sweetsville was a, a piece of property, still is, up in the mountains um, outside of Clovis, uh, not too far from Fresno, California. And Virgil had been a school teacher in Fresno with an interest in folk music. And uh, he made this summer camp at Sweetsville, which I found out about totally by accident <clears throat> because a guy who I'd played a lot of music with uh, back when I lived in Virginia and a little bit in North Carolina, named David Molk had moved out to California and he had been friends with me and my sister Bonnie. And um, I was visiting out there and she said, I got a message from David that there's this festival up in the mountains and we should go and see if we can go to it. And so that was 1974. And uh, <clears throat> I later found out when I moved to Seattle that quite a number of people who were living and playing here, either who grew up here or were Californians, that, that they had met or seen me play there, but I didn't know any of them. So I was just mostly playing uh, with David, whom I knew, and um, met a couple of people, uh, another um, Fresno musician, Harry Leedstrand, who was part of the uh, original Sweet Smell String Band, so Sweet Smell still goes on. I went there, I took my kids there 32 years later, like in 2006, and uh, it's it's still going on. It's a, a pretty magical place in some ways, and, mm -hmm. and um, there it was also the center for a lot of uh, different kinds of international music, Balkan music, flamenco dancing, uh, Middle Eastern music, uh, very eclectic. And there were a lot of lot of good players there, and a bunch of those people had moved up here. So when I arrived in Seattle in 1979, it was uh, just it was a, a wonderful, crazy scene. It was there, it was a movable feast. I mean, there was a, a music party every night. Yeah. It was really cheap to live. People were forming bands, which I hadn't had that much of experience with, um, and I think that. Everybody in those days was pretty highly influenced by the Highland Highwood String Band, yeah. who you know just sort of swept the old time world at that time, the the, the young scene, and and uh, and in fact Jack Link had played in an earlier version of that called the Fat City String Band. Hmm. Uh, so everybody was making bands right and left, and breaking up and making other bands, and you could and there were gigs to be had. I played a lot of Irish music then um, because Frank George had introduced me to Irish music and uh, you could make a, a band to play Irish music and around the month around St. Patrick's Day you could make half of the money it took you to live for the year just, yeah. just with those gigs. And uh, so then, you know, it's like 
more and more people start coming. Um, certain people lived here, uh, you know, were from here. Mark Graham, whom I played in, a, in the Hurricane Ridge Runners with, is a local boy. Jerry Gallagher um, was also a local boy. And now Jerry, along with, oh gosh, a dozen other people had gone to Evergreen State College in Olympia, and there was a guy named Tom Foote there, who, and Evergreen had uh, an alternative approach to college where you could basically make up the kind of program you want. And he, right, I've heard that. And he, this Tom Foote guy, was the head of people who were basically getting their degree in traditional music yeah. and folk music. And so <clears throat> Jerry Gallagher, the great Irish fiddler, Dale Rust, the great ultimately Cajun fiddler, but a great old-time fiddler too, Karen England, Scott Nygaard, whom you might have heard of, who, who's a good fiddler but an incredible guitar player. Um, there, I could go on and on. There, there was a whole bunch of them. So that encouraged a lot of people who many of whom were local people and who mm. then came back to Seattle, although some of them just ended up going to Evergreen from other places and then drifted up to Seattle. And so, you know how these things work. It's like growing a crystal. Once there's a little yes. seed of it, then yeah, it starts. And then people uh, found that it's pretty darn nice place to live. I mean, I've been yeah. here close to 40 years now, and I haven't thought about moving anywhere yeah. else. Want to have another tune? Yes, what's next on the list? Okay, so that first tune was a, a tune that I got from uh, Frank George. we got an A tune coming up. Oh, no, this is another D tune. Okay, so this is uh, a version of a tune that um, I've got on a Tommy Jackson record called The Maple on the Hill, but uh, it's Summers called it uh, the Old Sow Ate the Midlands, yeah. another D tune. So, so this was from John Summers, who... I met because uh, because of his connection with Frank George, who had met him, and Summers was from Marion, Indiana, up in northern Indiana, and uh, one time I went and visited him, spent three or four days with him. At that point, he was 87 years old and still an amazing player. He was a, a player on the level with him, in some ways comparable to uh, Ed Haley, mm -hmm. and in fact, certainly... <clears throat> and met and had played with Haley and uh, just a, a, an amazing fiddler. Frank's, he, Frank had him play on his first record on the Canal label with him. And if you're ever interested in it, there's about a 10-minute version of Mississippi Sawyer on there that will blow your mind. But this is a much simpler tune called The Old Sow Ate the Midlands. Yeah. All right. So here's Old Sow Ate the Midlands.
Whoa, that's a lot of notes. It is a lot of notes. And sorry oh, about my <clears throat> flubs on some of that stuff. Uh, my my ancient fingers are curling in funny directions. <laughs> I just heard John Summers, like my first John Summers source recording today. Uh-huh. Right before I came here, I was, um, oh shoot, I forget what tune it was. But it had, it also had all of the notes in it. Oh yeah, well he was a pretty noty fiddler, but oh my god, so inventive. I yeah. mean, like, uh, I, I don't know if you can find that uh, uh, Mississippi Sawyer on um, with with Frank and Pat Dunford playing mm. on like YouTube or something like that. But I wouldn't be surprised because it seems like you can find everything on there. Yeah, and uh, just incredible. Incredible playing. Yeah, I'm looking uh, forward to going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. Let's play another one of his yeah. tunes. Uh, this is an A tune uh, that you're going to need to tune for called, uh, it's his version of No Corn on Tigert. This one I'm a little more familiar with. I thought maybe I did it four times. Anyway, whatever. That sounded great. That sounded great. We'll keep that one. Okay. Oh, very good. Uh, so what else do you want? John to John Summers. John Summers, yeah. Frank George. All right. So when I met Frank George, uh, I also simultaneously met an earlier protege of his named Dave Malevsky, who lived in Columbus, Ohio. And... Uh, so, will you remind me, where's Frank George from? He's from Bluefield, West Virginia, okay. which Bluefield, Princeton, right down at the very southern tip of West Virginia. So, he and got around enough that he had a protege in Well, no. Uh, or did the Ohio person come to him? The Ohio person came to him. Right. Uh, the Ohio person, I think, also started going down to the Glenville, uh, West Virginia State Folk Festival. Um, and then, you know, Frank did get around some. I mean, he got up to Chicago. That's where I met him. But 
Um, Dave's place in Columbus was right on my way to going down to West Virginia, which is mostly where I went in the early days. And uh, so I would spend time with him as well. And, yeah. and he, he gave, taught me, to, showed me tunes, helped me tunes, gave me tapes. One thing he did was Frank had had a giant collection of Irish 78s that he had collected when he was in the service in uh, Great Britain. And he had learned probably most all of those tunes at one time or another, uh, kind of like Red Knuckles used to say, in his own style, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Frank was, was always uh, kind of noted as a hornpipe-type fiddler. And uh, so I put recorded all of those tunes onto reel-to-reel tapes and started listening to those piqued my interest in Irish music. So in the early days, I was playing probably equal amounts of Mm. them. And in 1970, um, after I graduated college, I went to Europe, and part of it I spent in Ireland, and uh, that cemented it even more. And then when I returned from Virginia to Chicago, I was not... uh, I had my one old friend, Mark Gunther, whom I uh, played... Old time and some other folks I played old time music with and and um, but I also I'd already met and visited some of the great older Irish players there and some of the younger players and Liz Carroll and I became quite good friends and she was like sixteen and an incredible fiddler at the time and so we played we actually recorded one cut on one of uh, Mick Maloney's records uh, and. Uh, but I would uh, Johnny McGreevy, Joe Shannon, uh, um, Joe Cooley, Seamus Cooley. Uh, Joe, his brother, lived out in California. Um, there, were, there was a lot of uh, obviously great Irish music in Chicago. So when I was there and working in the violin shop, I played more Irish music than I mm. did. But uh, so that was another thing that I got out of that connection with Dave, uh, but Dave also had told me about uh, that he had been, in 1967, he had been to uh, to Galax and met a fiddler who had come out of the, uh, uh, come down out of uh, Virginia near Roanoke, and he told me, and he played me this tune called Cuffy which you might have heard of. I spread that tune around in the in the uh, kind of early 70s. Uh, Cuffy. Cuffy. <laughs> and there's a little story behind that. But uh, he said, you know, when he knew I was moving to Charlottesville, he said, well, you should get down and see if you can find this guy named N.H. Mills, who lived in Boone's Mill, Virginia, up, out, up in the mountains outside of Roanoke. So one time I decided okay and I, I had this old 65 Chevy panel truck and I drove up found Roanoke found Boone's Mill started kind of asking people and they said oh yeah I'm up that road up there so I drove up this mountain road and got to this gate and the, there's a uh, mailbox that said NH Mills and I figured okay I'm here you know and and but there was a gate across the road which was openable, but it had a very clear sign that said, keep out, Yeah, you know? And so I was like, well, what should I do here? I mean, it's not like there was a doorbell yeah, or right. anything. 
So I opened the gate and I started slowly and closed it, started slowly driving, driving down the road. <laughs> and this, this older guy with bib overalls and no shirt on carrying a scythe, I swear to God, I thought it was the Grim Reaper, you know. <laughs> he comes walking across this field. And he said, well, what's that? I said, N.H. Mills, Dave Molesky, Glenville, I mean, uh, Galax, 1967. He says, oh, I'll go on up to the house. So I drive up to the house, and he's following me on foot through the field. And I get to the house, and there's his wife sitting in a rocking chair on the porch. And she gives me this look, and she just said to me, boy, can't you read? You know, <laughs> but it ended up being fine, and uh, and we played music. I uh, um I think I probably did play some banjo with him at that time, but mostly I just I had a little, this funny little Craig three-inch reel-to-reel recorder, and I uh, recorded uh, his tunes and learned some of them, and then ultimately retrieved some of them later and learned more. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cuffy was one of the tunes that came from him, and it turns out that Cuffy is a Americanized version of the name Kofi, like Kofi Annan, and uh, it was a name that was used particularly for house servants. And uh, so that's where that name came from. Huh. Uh, and that was a real nice G-tune that, that kind of got around. Because I taught it to the guys in the Highwoods band, and they put it on one of their records. Ah. And everybody started learning it from that. But he had uh, a lot of other really neat tunes. And this is one of them. In the, uh, I play it in cross-tuning. I know. I don't think it just works well there for me and it's kind of a uh, Liza Janey tune that he called Dino Ladies Dino Yeah, it has that structure of you know that I'm very familiar with, but that shape. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that before. <laughs> That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Here's a question I had. So in this time of old time revival, 
all of these sources, people are like hunting them down. Obviously, it's very different than now. You know, like when I want to, you know, meet one of the modern sources or the people who studied with them, all I do is I get on Facebook and right. I say, who should I interview? And then I get a list of like a hundred names, you know, and I choose the names that get the most hits. But in this time, I would imagine that I'm really interested in how did these sources feel about, do they, do they feel excited to share? Did they ever feel, um, what's the word? Put uh, out. Put out. Did they well, ever feel like uh, uh, taken advantage of or like? Yes, all all of the above, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you one of the reasons why I kind of limited my seeking out of folks is because I had some experiences like that. I mean, so like Tommy Gerald was legendary for you know, like everybody was welcome at his house for as long as they wanted to stay and that sort of stuff. this guy, N.H., Nicky Mills, um, when I visited him, he was very kind to me, very kind of super scripture-quoting religious. Okay. Uh, and and the, I, there were a couple other guys who I knew who uh, came down from uh, the Northeast, and I'm not going to mention any names, but um, they heard the stuff I had and I mentioned him and they went and visited him mm. and I think they were less than uh, gracious and and plus they were carrying big massive you know high quality recording equipment and uh, was they, it like they were just there to get his music but but they didn't necessarily like it well what I'm not I wasn't there so right. I don't know but I do know that they went down a second time and the story was when they left the second time he said you know uh if any of your other friends want to come down and see me why don't you just tell them i'm dead wow Uh, so but that also could have been that i mean he was very isolated up there and like i said real kind of holy roller kind of guy um i think he just didn't want to become a stop on the you know uh, the that sort of there was another time when in that trip to Ireland in 1970, I was there. Uh, no, it was in 76. I was back there and I was traveling with my sister. And I had heard about, uh, well, I knew there were people that I wanted to see out in County Clare. And somebody told me about another guy. And um, and I went and knocked on his door and, you know, just like, hi, you know, we're here. To, to, yeah. you know, and, and, Tunes, please. Yeah, and, and, and he said, <laughs> Well, you know, I'm kind of busy getting the getting the hay in now, so you're welcome to stay down in the field there. And uh, you know, I might have some time on Friday. Well, this was Tuesday, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. so we camped in this field, and we, you know, visited other people, and it was all worked out fine. And then Friday, he showed up at the pub for you know, like uh, an hour's worth of tunes, where there there was a session going on. So I just all of that made me realize. What makes me think that because just because I want to knock on somebody's door and they're supposed to like right. drop everything and accommodate me? Right. I mean, and there were a couple of other uh, things that made me feel that way. And I don't feel like I was an ungracious guest or anything, but I also felt like, geez, you know, I. Um, it's not all like. Uh, Tommy. 
Yeah, it's yeah. not all like Tommy. It's not all like you know. I got nothing better to do than to you know hook up with you young folks and uh, right. Uh, so and you know, I mean everything has changed so much. Like you said, all you got to do is go on YouTube and you know get all these recommendations and lists and that sort of thing. The other thing is that. Um, Back, and now I'm going to sound like an old timer that I... Please. Uh, <laughs> back in my day. I mean, look, when I when I first started playing this music in 1969, there were maybe at most a couple of dozen LP recordings that were available. Yeah. And, you know, so there were field recordings that we traded with each other and that sort of stuff. I mean, County Records had very few reissues at that point or, or, or issues of stuff. Yeah. And... Uh, so we kind of had to, you know, we'd go to the festivals, we'd seek out these people. I mean, sometimes people were really nice and they'd say, come on by and that sort of stuff. But that's, and and they would let us, you know, record them with whatever primitive devices we had. Uh, and, uh, but now, now it's all out there on the internet. I yeah. mean, so the, the, the people I learned and the people that from and the people that they learned from yeah. so that there's, there's really not any need to do that anymore. I mean, at, right. at times I felt like, geez, you know, like I'm at this point in my life where <laughs> the young folks ought to be, you know, like showing up and, you know, like, hey, let's let's have some tunes or something like that. And it happens every now and then. But yeah. but for the most part, they don't they don't need me. I mean, they they right. can go they can go back beyond where I learned from, you know. So, uh, but I also. Um, don't get me wrong. I've certainly learned plenty of tunes from recordings and from uh, music books. I can at least mm -hmm. read Treble Clef. But I find, as life goes on, the the tunes that I that stick with me most are the ones that I learned directly from yeah. other fiddlers. And um, I mean, I can play along if somebody will, you know, kind of like jog my memory i can play tunes and i i'm pretty darn quick at learning tunes but left to my own devices the stuff i'm going to come up with is mostly kind of the older stuff that i learned directly from from the guys that i learned from and and then also uh oh i mean you know when i was one of the reasons i stopped playing as much irish music as i did was it's just the the tune acquisition was just like crazy yeah. you know i mean and and you reach a certain point with your brain where every it's like a a table that's got a bunch of cans on it and you push yeah. one can on one end <laughs> and three fall off the other end you know so uh i just i i, I can't keep them anymore and i have other sides to my life that i like to pursue yeah. i'm still doing my work and i love the work i do and i yeah. i have kids and i have the best sweetheart in the world and i love movies and so you know yeah. i mean that's there are other stuff i want to do yeah interesting yeah it's but you know the uh, the one thing i will say another thing i'll say is that uh in the sort of middle period of me playing so slow like say sometime there in the you know, 70s going into the 80s, um, there was a concern about, geez, is there going to be, you know, anybody in the younger generation? Because, you know, you'd go to these things and, and, and to festivals or gatherings, whatever, and it just seems like everybody's starting to get gray hair and whatever. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, it's just been this huge explosion. And, and it's funny, some of the older 
people my age, older folks that that I know will kind of complain about, well, geez, you know, uh, we're kind of, you know, I mean, they feel a little bereft that they're not getting the the respect and the accolades that they're due or something like that. But, you know, I remind them, I say, look, you know, we thought this music might have a chance of dying out or at least dying way back. I yeah. mean, uh, and now it's in really good hands. Yeah. It's going in oftentimes in different and interesting and right. not necessarily totally pleasing directions, but people are listening to mm-hmm. the good old shit and doing what they, you know, uh, uh, what they feel like doing with it, and and uh, it's vibrant again, and yeah. the, the dance scene is vibrant again. So <clears throat> we can make our graceful exit stage left. This is one of the most nuanced like takes on this I've had on the show. This is awesome. Yeah, because I've I've always wondered like you know it, today, e- even your story about N.H. Mills, that's his name, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know about him, you know, going to receive tunes from him and record him. <laughs> But also receiving this, like, you know, maybe Bible thumping, you know, like, being evangelized to. And it makes me think of, you know, the current political climate of old time music is this. To me, it's 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 a lot of northern (coughs) northern folks that are like very neoliberal, you know, and they're the ones who are holding these tunes now. And, but they have like often such disdain for people in the South, and it's like it just reminds me of like oh yeah it's like we want the we want the music but we don't want anything else. Yeah, it's not. It's I mean, look the 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 one thing that's become clear and uh, much clearer to me is that this music was spread out all over everywhere. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story about that that you know uh, I have dismay about, but. When I moved back to Chicago in uh, 1973, I mean, <clears throat> one reason I, I one reason I was playing all the Irish music was that I wanted to, but the other reason was that I was like, well, you know, it'd be nice if there were older folks, you know, somewhere around here that you know that I could go and find. Yeah. And but this is Illinois. I mean, like, what what the hell is there here? Well. Look at Gary Harris yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and chirps. You know, look what they oh, found. Boy. You know, I mean, I just, I just assumed that it wasn't there, and <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. And and uh, and you know, we won't even get into uh, northern prejudices against uh, the South. Uh, I think at this point, it's more of a. You know, there's more of an urban-rural thing, you know, going right. on, and and as is being defined by the current political climate, it's you know this coastal versus heartland kind of yeah. thing. It's nice that uh, the music is something that can yeah. bridge over that. And yeah. I'll tell you something funny though. You know, just like listening to your style, your banjo playing, which is quite uh, skilled and everything, Thanks. but you. Uh, are a uh, practitioner of what Frank George used to call Northern College style. Northern College style? <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> I always like that expression. Northern College style. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want to play next? Uh, let's play another Mills tune, that uh, G tune, Sandy, his version of Sandy River Bells. Now, is this the very last one? 
Sorry. Uh, this is the last one before... Uh, our bonus track. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me get into tune real quick. Okay. Yeah. G-tune. Armin, thanks so much for having oh. me in your home and, home and sharing all these tunes and thoughts with me. Oh. Really appreciate it. I hope you're... Hope your listening public likes it. Yeah, I think they will. Sandy River Bells. If you want to support Get Up In The Cool, here's some easy ways to do it. First, go tell everyone that might be interested that this show exists. In person is great, but also on Facebook and all your favorite trad music forums. Then, look up Get Up In The Cool on Apple Podcasts and write a five-star review. For those of you who want to go above and beyond and be justly rewarded, go to CameronDeWitt.com and click the Patreon button. There you'll find all the levels at which you can financially support the show and their corresponding rewards, like on-air shoutouts, weekly bonus tracks, online banjo workshops, and access to the Get Up In The Cool tune archive, featuring every tune ever played on the show, tagged and organized for your iTunes library. Pretty sure there's like at least 30 hours of music on there right now. My family and I are moving back to Oregon this year, and when we do, I'm quitting my current job and... I'm not planning on applying for a new one. My plan is to perform, teach banjo lessons on Skype, and make this show. And I gotta say, I'm really excited to be able to put more energy into this show. Like, even just being able to edit during the day, 
you don't even know. <laughs> it's going to get a lot better. All that is to say, I'm so grateful to my Patreon supporters. Thank you for turning this fun hobby into a calling and a way to support my family and my career. And to those of you who haven't signed up yet, now would be a great time. I'm kind of taking a leap of faith here. <laughs> also, hit me up for those Skype banjo lessons. I teach on Saturday afternoons. You can contact me through Facebook or the contact form on my website. If you don't have it already, the Best of 2016 album, Get Up in the Cool Volume 1, is available on my website, CameronDeWitt.com. Just click the Buy slash Stream button. While you're there, click that button that says TOTBS, which stands for Think Outside the Box Set, my other podcast. Uh, when I meet Get Up in the Cool listeners in person, they often say that they feel like they know me. And they're partly right, but Get Up in the Cool Cameron is sort of my sort of my super ego and think outside the box set Cameron on the other hand is mostly not that so <laughs> consider that a hesitant invitation you can find think outside the box set at boxset.website yes that's a real URL or wherever you stream get up in the cool all the links I mentioned in this outro can be found in the show notes on your device or on cameradoit.com slash getupinthecool. And make sure to like, follow, and join Get Up In The Cool's Facebook page and group. Then share all the posts, please. Thanks for listening, friends. Come back same time next week to Get Up In The Cool. <laughs>